Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21 is our text for today. The title of our message is Covenant of Grace. Covenant of Grace. Genesis chapter 15. As you turn there, I'm going to ask you to follow along as I read from God's Word. This is the Word of the living God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. The covenant of grace. Obviously, the Bible is full of words, right? I mean, that's stating the obvious. The Bible is God's written revelation of himself to us. It's full of words, and they're all God's words. They're all breathed out by God, so everyone is important. But there are some key words in Scripture. You can probably think of some of those key words. You might think of words like righteousness or uh, justice or perhaps the word sacrifice or the word grace, maybe the word faith or the word Christ. But perhaps one that doesn't come to our minds as readily, but it is one of the most important words in the Bible, is the word covenant. It's the word covenant. And we see that here in our passage today. Covenant. This word is used throughout the Bible, and if we'll study the word covenant as it's used throughout God's word, it actually helps connect all the different parts of God's word into one big whole, which is what God's word is. It's telling us one story about God's plan of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word covenant helps us understand that story. A very simple way to think about covenant is simply to think about promise. We know what a promise is, right? Well, think about promise when you think about the word covenant. At its heart, a covenant is a promise. But 
There are different kind of promises that we make. This kind of promise is, is something way more, way deeper than a contractual type of agreement that sometimes we might phrase as a promise. For instance, when you sign a contract with someone, you are agreeing to do something as long as the other person upholds his or her end of the deal. But if that person doesn't uphold his or her end of the deal, the contract's off. You don't do what you promised you would do. But when God makes a covenant, he is promising to do something regardless of the actions of the other party involved. It's one of the beautiful things about God's covenants. He's promising to do something, and he's going to do it regardless of the actions or the inaction of the other party involved. That other party, by the way, is us, those who believe in Christ, which means God's covenant is sure. It is fixed. He will see it through to the end, even when we fail. And therefore, it's a covenant of grace. There's another part of of covenant that is different than just like a contractual agreement. Covenant involves deep relationship. It involves deep relationship. Covenants are not just dry legal agreements. When you sign, for instance, a mortgage, you're not entering into a deep personal relationship with the banker. You're not. All you're doing is saying, I'm going to pay back all the money that you let me borrow plus the interest, and that's it. That's about as deep as our relationship with the banker goes when we sign that mortgage. That's a contractual type of agreement. But covenants are not like that. When God enters into a covenant with someone, he's entering into a deep personal relationship with that someone, with that person. That's how God's covenants work. They're based on a deep relationship, and those relationships are based on God's very good and great promises. And the right response to God's promises is faith. That is confident trust that God is going to do what he says he will do. And we see all of this, I'm just kind of giving you, just jumping in with an overview of covenant and what covenant is. We see all of this happening in this passage today. Church, Genesis chapter 15 teaches us that God graciously enters into relationship with us through our faith in his covenant promises. God graciously, where gracious means, comes from grace, means it's a gift, it's not something we earn, enters into relationship, that's that deep relationship we're talking about, with us through our faith, not through our works, we'll talk about that, in his covenant promises. It's not really our promises, it's God's covenant promises that he makes towards us. Now, Let's kind of remember where we're at in the Bible at this point. When we get to Genesis chapter 15, by the time we get here, we've seen God create the world. We've seen humans mess up the world that God created through their sin. We've seen God curse the world that he's made. We've seen this serpent who is a tempter. We've seen God curse the serpent. We've seen God make a great promise that he's going to send a deliverer who's going to destroy the serpent. We've seen God punish the world through a global flood. We've seen God rescue one man, Noah, and his family, and then begin to repopulate the earth. And then we've seen God call out this one man, who we know as Abram, the man in our passage today, through whom this promised deliverer is going to come to bring salvation. That's where we're at at this point in the Bible. This man's name is Abram. Remember, God called Abram to leave his home. He did. He obeyed. He left with his wife, who is barren. And and he also left with his uh, nephew, who we've seen doesn't always make the best choices. Um, In fact, Abram just had to go and rescue Lot. Do you remember that back in chapter 14? Um, He had to rescue his nephew, who had chosen to go live with wicked people. And he ended up getting taken captive. Abram had to go and rescue him. 
And the previous chapter ended with Abram choosing to trust God with his future rather than sharing in the spoils of victory with the wicked king of Sodom. But now Abram's getting older by the day. He's still childless, still owning none of the land. He's probably wondering about the future and the promises God has made to him. And that sets the stage for God to officially make this covenant with Abram. Church, my hope today is this passage will build our confidence in God's covenant. That's that's what I pray. I pray that this passage would build our confidence in God's covenant. You see, it's easy. And you know this. If you walk with the Lord any length of time, it's easy to doubt the promises of God. But I want us to walk away from this passage, one, rejoicing that God would make a covenant with sinful people like us. Rejoicing in His covenant of grace. And then also, just walk away confident that God is going to do what He has said He will do. I want to share with you four reasons from this passage why we can have confidence in God's covenant. And I'm going to go ahead and point out that these reasons all have to do with God. They all have to do with God's actions, which is a good thing. His covenant is His work, not ours, which is a good thing. Which means that His covenant is a gift to be received, not a wage that we earn. Which means it is a gift of grace. First reason, and I want to share with you that we can have confidence in the covenants that God makes with us is this. We can have confidence in God's covenant because God preserves us for his promise. God preserves us for his promise. Remember I said that covenant involves relationship? We see that right off the bat in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. We see, we see God being a personal God, not a distant God. Now, sometimes it may feel like God is a distant God, but he's not. He's a personal God. Listen to what he says to Abram. He has, Abram has this vision, and God says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Not even, I'm going to send a shield to you. I will be your shield. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now, why would Abram be afraid? God said, Fear not, Abram. Why would he be afraid? Well, we look at the next few verses, it seems Abram is afraid that he's not going to have a child. And these promises that God made, which really depend on him having a child, are not going to happen. Will his life end and God's promises be broken? Is God not going to keep his word? The answer from God is no. There is nothing, Abram, that you need to be afraid of. Why? Because Abram was strong and mighty? No. Because God was strong and mighty. And he's a personal God. And he said, I will be your shield. God's going to act in such a way to preserve Abram for the promise that he made to Abram. Abram's just refused to take the spoils of victory at the end of chapter 14. He acted in faith by keeping his vow before the Lord and not take anything from the wicked king, wicked king of Sodom, which probably would have been pretty tempting to do. More stuff oftentimes makes us think that our future will be more secure, but he doesn't make that decision. But that doesn't mean that Abram is perfect. He's he's. It doesn't mean he's not wondering about his future. It doesn't mean that he's not, not fearful and feeling those, those fears that we often feel. He's saying, here I am. I'm trying to trust you, God, but it just doesn't seem like your promises are being fulfilled. Now notice verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Notice his confusion. For I continue childless. It just doesn't make sense to Abram. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Perhaps that was a servant. We don't know a lot about him, but we do know it's not his son. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that Abram looks like the possessions he does have and perhaps that God is going to give him whatever blessing is going to be passed along to someone else. And all about God's promises just don't don't work at that point. But God responds with further clarification. He responds with further clarification of his promise. He said, up until now, we've seen this several times now in Genesis. God makes a promise of an offspring. You're going to have an offspring. You're going to have an offspring. You're going to have an offspring. Now, God gets even more specific. He says, you're going to have your very own son. You're going to have a son that belongs to you. It's not going to be your servant. It's not going to be some other person. It's going to be your very own son. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. He's talking about Eliezer. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then God restates a promise that he's previously made. And that promise is that Abram's descendants are going to be extremely numerous. They're going to be very great. Look at verse 5. He brings them outside. So Abram, things like was in his tent um, having this vision. God brings them outside. And God says, look up. Look up at the heaven. At this point, the sky is filled with stars. And he says, number them. Number the stars if you're able to do so. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The last time we saw God make this promise, he used a different word picture. He used the dust of the earth. He said, your descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth. Now he says they're going to be like the stars. God, I love what God is doing. He's surrounding Abram with his good and very great promises. Now when Abram walks around, he looks down at the dirt and he's going to remember the promise of God. And he looks up at the stars. He's going to remember the promise of God. God's surrounding him with his good and great promises. And when he was tempted to doubt God's promises, all Abram needed to do was look to the one who had made the promises. Because he was going to be Abram's shield. I will be your shield. Who is that? Who's saying that? That's the God who is over all. You remember back in chapter 14, we had that phrase, the kind of title of God. God who is the the, the Lord most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Who's greater than that? No one. That's the one who's going to be Abram's shield. He's going to personally defend Abram against anything that would cut him off from the promises that God had made to him. Friend, we need not fear if we belong to God. We need not fear. His promise of salvation sometimes may seem far off. Our circumstances may make it appear as though God has somehow removed his love from us. We may feel like the attacks from the enemy are going to somehow cut us off from our fellowship with God. But hear God's word. God is our shield. He will preserve us for his promises. We need not fear. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, who is writing to suffering Christians in Rome concerning their hope in Jesus for salvation. And Paul wrote this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We know the answer to that. No one. He goes on and he says, He who did not spare his own son, he's talking about Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church, we can have confidence in God's covenant because God preserves us for his promise. Let me give you another reason. We can have confidence in God's covenant because God credits faith, not works, with righteousness. We can have confidence in God's covenant because God credits faith, not works, with righteousness. Verse 6 is actually one of the most important verses in the Bible. Right here in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. 
as we consider the reasons why we can have confidence in God's covenant promise, we've got to, we've got to ask, all right, what is God going to require of us, right? I mean, if, the, if there's this covenant that's taking place, this kind of agreement of some sort, what's going to be required of me? See, if God requires us to earn his love, if God requires us to earn a relationship with him, if God requires us to earn the right to participate in his covenant and to stay in his covenant, then, friends, we are doomed. We are doomed if that's the way this covenant is going to work. If God says, I promise to do this, but you have to prove how good you are, we're doomed. Every one of us. And the reason is that we are sinners and God demands perfection. If we had to do enough good works in order to be counted righteous in God's sight, then we would certainly never be counted righteous for we all fall short of the glory of God. God's standard of perfection. Now, in just a moment, we're going to see God officially enter into this covenant with Abram through a ceremony. Okay, we're going to, we're going to see that in just a moment. But verse 6 is very important before we get there because it helps us know that God was not entering into covenant with Abram because Abram had done some good work. God was not entering into covenant with Abraham because he was somehow impressed with Abram's work ethic or because Abram had good manners or because he did good deeds like rescuing Lot. Or, or because Abram had made some kind of promise to God. Oh, God, I promise to be a better person. God, I promise to stop doing some of these bad things and I'll, I'll clean up my act. That's not how this covenant is going to work. God enters into covenant with Abraham simply through Abram's faith in God's promise. God looks not at Abram's works, but at Abram's faith. And based on that, he counts Abram as righteous, which means he's able to have a relationship with Abram. This is huge. I said this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. This is what separates biblical Christianity from every other religion or belief system in the world. Whether it's Mormonism, Hinduism, Islam, Catholicism, Jehovah's Witness, Animism, Judaism, they all are in some way, shape, or form based on us doing good works in order to guarantee God's favor towards us. I know they differ in a whole lot of other ways, but they all come down to I have to do something in order for God to love me, in order to appease God's wrath, in order to earn his favor. But biblical Christianity says no, no to any kind of works-based salvation. Biblical Christianity says the only way we can be counted righteous in God's sight is by trusting in the work that he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life and paid the price for all of our sin. That's 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 Christianity. That's what the Bible teaches. In his detailed explanation of the gospel to the Romans, the Apostle Paul argues from this verse. It's another reason I say this is one of the most important verses in the Bible, not just because I like it. Or it, uh, The Apostle Paul, writing a detailed explanation of the gospel to the Romans, he goes back to this verse, really at one of the heart uh, uh, centerpieces of his letter, as he makes an argument that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by God's grace through faith. This is the verse that he goes back to. And he kind of preaches a little sermon on it in Romans chapter 4. I would encourage you to go and read it. I'm just going to summarize it. Now, in Genesis chapter 17, a couple of chapters later, we're going to see God talk about covenant again with Abram, and he's going to talk about it, and there's going to be this good work that Abram's going to have to do. Now, it's tempting for us to think, okay, 
That's why God loves Abram. That's why he's entering into covenant with him in chapter 17, because he did this good work. But we're not in chapter 17. We're in chapter 15 before Abram does that good work. And before he does that good work, God is crediting Abram with righteousness. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter four. He points out that Abram was counted righteous in Genesis chapter 15, not Genesis chapter 17, which means he was counted righteous through his faith and not his works. And friends, I emphasize this point. There's a reason that I get excited about this. I emphasize it because there's going to be a lot of people in hell one day who tried to do enough good things to earn God's love. And that doesn't work because we are sinners. We have sinned against the holy God and we can never do enough to make up for the wrong that we have done. In fact, the Bible says even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. Our only hope is that God would enter into covenant with us based on his gift of grace towards us, not based on anything that we would do. Our only hope is that it's by faith, which is exactly what Genesis 15 verse 6 says. And God counted Abram's faith to him as righteousness, not his works. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So what does this have to do with breeding confidence in God's covenant? It has everything to do with breeding confidence in God's covenant. If our participation in God's covenant was somehow based on our works, then we could have zero confidence that we would remain in that covenant because we mess up, we sin. If it was based in any way on our good deeds, us earning that, we could have zero confidence. And so many people have zero confidence in their salvation because it's based on what they think is on their good works. But praise God, he credits faith with righteousness. Praise God, he credits us simply believing that God has done all the work in order for us to be saved. He credits that with a right standing before him. Praise God, his covenant is not for perfect people, but for sinners like you and like me who trust in his gracious work of salvation. We can have confidence in God's covenant because God credits faith, not works, with righteousness. Now we're going to shift from verses 1 through 6 to verses 7 through 21. We see this actual covenant being made. And this is where the story gets kind of interesting because we see animals being cut apart. We see smoking fire pot, flaming torch, passing between cut apart animals. Okay, it's kind of interesting. Uh, We see Abram falling into this darkness and... God speaking to him is is pretty interesting and it's very important as we think about God's covenant. Now, remember, not only has God promised Abram an offspring, he also promised Abram a land. And God reminds him of that promise in verse seven. Look, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But then Abram asked for some sort of sign. It's not doubting God's promise because he's already text already told us that he's believed God. God doesn't chastise him for the request. Plus, we've already been told Abraham is, is, has faith in the Lord's promises. So but verse 8, he says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then notice what happens in verse 9 through 11. God says to him, all right, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham obeys. He brings all these. He cuts them in half. He lays the halves apart from each other. So like half the cow over here, half the cow over here, half, half the, what do we got? What animals? Um, 
a, a ram. Yeah, I was going to say goat, a uh, ram three years old. Um, this half's over here, half of his ear. The goat, three years old. Uh, half over here, half over here. So this is a bloody scene. And, um, and then he's got the, the, the birds. He doesn't cut them in half. They're pretty small. Uh, probably just sets one over here, one over here. And, uh, and then he drives the birds away that try to come down and eat them. So we're like, what's going on here? Now, what he's doing is he's setting up the, the ceremony. And we're going to come back to the ceremony in just a minute. We'll come back to these animals in just, in just a moment. But after the animals are prepared, the text tells us in verse 12, as the sun is going down, so this day has passed and the sun is going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. What's happening? Well, God's getting ready to speak to Abram. He's about to have this encounter with the, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And listen, we stand before a holy, righteous God. Uh, we sometimes like to think it's bright, bright and beautiful. And, and in one sense it is, but also the Bible describes that as great darkness because he's holy and we're not. It's, it's, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, Scripture tells us. And so, so he's going to have this, this encounter with God. And here's what God's going to do. He's going to tell him the future. God's going to tell him the future. Church, the reason number three, why we can have confidence in God's covenant is this. It's because God is sovereign over the future. We can have confidence in the covenant that God makes with us, his salvation promises, because God is sovereign over the future. He tells Abram the future. He wants to build up Abram's confidence in the promises that he's made to him. So verse 13 through 16, God, God tells him what's going to happen. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring... We'll be sojourners. They're going to be strangers. They're going to be wanderers in a land that's not theirs. They'll be servants there. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years. It's going to be hard. But God says, I'm going to bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they're going to come out with great possessions. And as for yourself, you're going to go down to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. And then your descendants, they're going to come back here to this land in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites, which are people who live in that land right then, is not yet complete. Big picture, Abram says, how do I know that I'm going to have this land? And God responds with, let me just tell you what's going to happen over the next half millennium. See what's happening? <laughs> if the person who's making the promises has that much control over the future, you can trust that those promises are going to, he's going to make good on those promises. He's sovereign over the future. He's sovereign over it. And we know from the rest of Genesis and the next several books of the Bible that God did exactly what he said he was going to do. That this is exactly what happens. I mean, the, the people, Abram's descendants, they end up in where? Egypt. They're there for about 400 years. The text tells us 430 years they're in Egypt. And they were servants. They were slaves. And then God brought judgment on that nation through the ten plagues. And he delivered them out of there. And they left with great possessions. Exodus tells us that they plundered the Egyptians before they left. God says that's what's going to happen. And they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And the book of Joshua tells us that they enter into the land of Canaan, which is the land where Abraham is now, where God's making this promise to him. And they go in and they defeat the Amorites and all the other peoples who live there. Just like God said would happen. Friend, God not only knows the future, God is sovereign over the future. He controls the future. And as we go through the book of Genesis, we're going to see all kind of evil that comes up that makes it, looks like, makes it look like God's plans are not going to come to fruition, except that they are. Because God's sovereign over all of that. He even says he uses the evil as a part of his plan, not as the author of evil, but as the one who's sovereign over the evil. We think about Joseph, right, and his whole life that's coming later in the book of Genesis. God is sovereign over all of this. So hear this, when the one making the promise both knows and controls the future, we can have confidence in that promise. 
Church, the more we see God as sovereign, that is in control over every circumstance of life, the more our confidence will grow in the certainty of his promises, his salvation promises to us. Listen, I can promise my children that I'm going to take them to the park next Saturday. I can say, girls, I promise y'all that I'm going to take you to the park next Saturday. It's just an illustration, okay? All right? I promise you that I'm going to, I'm going to, they're not laughing at y'all, they're laughing at me, okay? I can say, I'm going to promise y'all that I'm going to take you to the park next Saturday. Why don't you think about all the things that could happen between now and then? I don't know the weather next Saturday. It could be, we could have some lightning next Saturday. We can't go to the park when it's lightning. My car might break down, okay? Um, that seems to be happening a lot these days. Uh, I, I, we might not make it to the park. We might get sick. That seems to be happening a lot these days, too. All right? I, I can make that promise to them, but I, I really I can't control whether that's going to happen or not. Obviously, some of that's in my control. But there's a lot of things that are out of my control. But what if I controlled the future and I knew the future? Then when I said, girls, I'm going to take you all to the park on Saturday, there, there, there wouldn't have to be a doubt in their minds. Because the one who's making the promise both knows and controls the future. Listen, that's not me, but that is God. And so when God says, I am going to save you. If you believe in Jesus, we, we can take that to the bank. We can take that, not to the bank, we can take that to the very presence and throne room of God and say, God, you promised that you will save me. I know I'm a wicked sinner, but you said if I believe in Jesus for salvation, that you would see me through to the end and you would usher me into your kingdom forever. And God's going to say, you better believe that's right. And listen, whenever it seems like those promises are being broken, whenever we feel perhaps the weight of our guilt, Whenever the circumstances of life may make it seem like God is not with us, that he's not present with us. When it seems like things are out of control. And the God who made those covenant promises to us is God who knows and controls the future. And we can have confidence in God's covenant because God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the future. Let me share this last one with you. And this is really a summary of basically everything we've said. We'll take but a moment because we kind of said this. It kind of wraps up this passage. Friends, we can have confidence in God's covenant because God is the guarantee. And that's really what we've been saying this whole time. God is the guarantee of that covenant. God is the shield, not us. God does the work, not us. Seen in the fact that it's by faith and not by works. God is sovereignly controlling the future, not us. It's not about us. And our ability to control the future. In other words, we can have confidence in God's covenant because his covenant depends upon him. And brothers and sisters, God will never let us down. You believe that? He will never let us down. Now, remember, Abram has asked for a sign and God had him cut up these animals. He puts half the animal over here, half the animal over here, half the animal, half the animal, half the animal, half the animal, bird, 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 bird. Okay, all right, so you got the scene there. And, and, and then what happens, verse 17 and 18, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So you got the smoking fire pot and this flaming torch, and they're moving in between these cut up animals. Kind of strange, right? If that's what you're thinking, I'm thinking the same thing. We're on the same page. Kind of strange. What's going on? First, you have to understand the ritual, the, the ceremony. For making a covenant. Literally the word is to cut a covenant. Which then makes sense because there's animals cut. Symbolizing the cut. They would say we're going to cut a covenant. Maybe like we would say we're going to cut a deal. They're going to cut a covenant. 
And then the person making the covenant would walk between the halves of these animals as a symbol that he was promising to do what the covenant entailed. It was like this person, whoever's making the covenant, was saying, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I don't fulfill this covenant. That's what this agreement is. It's very visual, okay? If what happened to these animals, let that happen to me if I don't fulfill this covenant. All right, so we've got to know that. The second thing we need to understand is what the smoking fire pot and flaming torch, me, represent. I mean, it's, again, it seems a little, a little weird. Friends, here's the beautiful truth. Don't miss this. They represent God. They represent God. Throughout Scripture, God is represented by smoke and by fire. I can give you several examples. I'm just going to give you one where we see both of them. Moses on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19 verse 18 says this. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. God is often pictured, he he reveals himself as smoke and fire. What does that mean in this passage? It means that God is the one who is passing through the halves of these animals, not Abram. Which means God is the guarantee of the covenant, not Abram. Which means Abram can have complete confidence in this covenant. The covenant depends on God and God alone. God doesn't walk through, represented by the pot and the, the flaming, uh, smoking pot and the flaming torch. He doesn't walk through and say, all right, Abram, now you walk through. Because if you don't uphold your end, if you don't live perfectly, then deal's off. No, God walks through and that's it. That's the end. The covenant is sealed. It depends on God and God alone. And God never fails. God never breaks his promise. We can have confidence in God's covenant because God is the guarantee. Now, perhaps you're sitting there wondering, this is a great story for Abram. I'm so glad for him. But what in the world does this have to do with me? What does the world, what in the world does covenant have to do with me? I know you're not Abram. I'm not Abram. God hasn't promised us the offspring and land like he promised Abram and offspring and land. Not in that very physical sense like it was taking place here. But God has made a covenant that you can be a part of. He made all sorts of covenants in his word. But the prophets prophesied about a new covenant. This new covenant that was coming. And in this new covenant, God would do what we need done to us. A spiritual heart surgery. He would, he would change our hearts. He would replace the dead in sin hearts that we are born into this world with, with a heart of flesh, a heart that worships God. He would rescue us from our sin. He would forgive us through this new covenant. This new covenant be one in which his son Jesus, the promised offspring of Abraham, would come and he would die on the cross in our place. He would rise up from the dead so that everyone who believes in him could be forgiven of their sin and have everlasting life. He would give it to us as a gift, a gift of grace from the greatest promise that God ever made is to rescue us from our sins simply through faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture says, listen to this, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will, not might, not maybe, will be saved. The angel told Joseph, 
to call the child in Mary's womb Jesus. Jesus means the one who saves. And the angel said, for he will, not maybe, not might, he will save his people from their sin. And Jesus told his disciples, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, notice his language, I will Come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also church. We can have confidence in God's covenant promises. We can have confidence in salvation through Jesus. We can have confidence that our eternity in heaven is secure, that it is sealed and God never goes back on his promises. I want to close with the words of the Apostle Peter. I want you to listen to this confidence. He's writing to suffering, persecuted Christians, and he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, imperishable, that is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, he's talking about us who believe in Jesus, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, God is our shield. God does the work. God is sovereign. And God is the guarantee. And it's all through Jesus. For scripture says, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So let me ask you, have you believed in Jesus for salvation? It's the only way, but it is a sure way. And if you have trusted Christ, are you confident in the promises of God? Are you thankful that it doesn't depend on you? But it depends on God keeping his word. And he never goes back on his word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for your covenant promises. Thank you that they are dependent upon you. And God, you showed us in a very real and grand and sobering way how, how certain salvation is of those who believe in Jesus because you sent Jesus to the cross. And God, you didn't do that so that we might be saved. You didn't crucify your son for the chance of us being saved. You crucified your son so that everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. God, would you increase our confidence in your covenant promises? God, if there's someone here today who hasn't believed in Jesus, Lord, right now, right now, I pray that they would ask you to save them. And they would confess their sin. And they would ask you to save them, not because they deserve it, but because you love them, and because Jesus paid the price for their sin. And they believe in Him, and Him alone for salvation. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this opportunity to grow and our understanding of who you are and what you have done for us. God, as we respond to you by saying thank you through worshiping you through song, 
God, may you receive the glory and the honor and the praise as we simply worship you, the one who is responsible for this great covenant of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.